Edward Kimball was a timid, unassuming Sunday school teacher at a congregational church, and one of his students was a 17-year-old whose uncle was basically forcing him to come. And after that 17-year-old had attended for a number of weeks, Kimball decided that he was going to go speak to that student about accepting Christ. So he went to where the student worked at a shoe store, and this is what Kimball later recorded about that day. April 21st, 1855. With tears in my eyes, I approached the 17-year-old shoe clerk. I asked him to come to Christ, who loved him and who wanted his love and should have it. And the surprised young man did accept Christ. And this boy, whose name was Dwight, resolved that he was going to speak to at least one person about Jesus between that point and the rest of his life. And in 40 years of ministry, he was able to reach out to tens of thousands of people following on that initial commitment that he made. Now, we may know the name of Dwight L. Moody, the young man that was converted to Christ in this situation. You may never have heard of Edward Kimball. But we see how Edward Kimball's influence actually influenced many others for Christ. And today we're actually going to look at a story in the New Testament that is quite similar to this one, but it happened back in the first century. Now you probably know about the Apostle Paul, you may also know that he was previously known as Saul. He was persecuting Christians, but eventually he became a Christian, he became a missionary and an evangelist, and he wrote nearly half of the books in the New Testament. You know his name. But are you familiar with the person who the Holy Spirit led to influence him? And that man's name was Ananias. It, at a pivotal time in the life of Saul of Tarsus, he was visited and he was baptized by Ananias. And in fact, Acts chapter 9, and then it's recorded again in Acts chapter 22, they are the only two times that we hear about this obscure individual. Nowhere else in the Bible is his name mentioned. Yet Ananias' visit and obedience to the Holy Spirit impacted a new convert who in turn influenced millions of lives. So here's a little background on Saul. He's a powerful leader of the Pharisees. He's well respected and doing everything he can to oppose the spread of Christianity. He mocks the resurrection and he sees Christians as enemies. He sees them as a threat to the Jewish way of life. And Saul has personally taken it upon himself to have these Christians thrown in prison in hopes that they will be executed so that would snuff out this radical and growing cult which is spreading like wildfire. And we see the first mention of Saul in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was being stoned to death for his faith. And the scriptures tell us that those who were stoning Stephen were taking their outer garments and dropping them at the feet of Saul so they could throw just a little bit harder. And Stephen became the first martyr of the Christian faith. But Luke's recording is very chilling here. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it simply says, Saul approved the stoning of Stephen. So that's what he was about. 
And just imagine how the news about this stoning was spread and caused the Christians to scatter. And the Bible tells us that Saul was like a methodical madman. He was going from house to house, and he was flushing out the Christians. He was dragging them off and throwing them into prison. And this wasn't where Saul was saying, well, you know, I disagree with your interpretation of what the Bible says, and why don't we go into the synagogue and have a debate? It was nothing like that at all. He was like a Hitler. He wanted to exterminate a whole segment of society. So picking up in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Saul kept on threatening to kill the Lord's followers. He even went to the high priest and asked for letters to the leaders of the synagogues in Damascus. He did this because he wanted to arrest and take to Jerusalem any man or woman who had accepted the Lord's way. So put yourself in Saul's sandals. You see Christianity as a direct attack against your Jewish faith. So you've set out to prove that this man, Jesus, who was crucified, that could not be debated, but he's not the Messiah. That's what you're out to prove. You're out to prove that he's dead, that he's still buried, and you want to stop these Christians from spreading these stories about a resurrection. You want these fanatics to stop now. So you're a man on a mission until that day when you're traveling to Damascus. And this incredible light from heaven shines on you and it blinds you. And then you see this person, you hear this voice, and you're knocked to the ground. And that voice speaks directly to you and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then you say, well, who are you, Lord? And the voice responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Jesus tells you to get up and go into the city and just wait there for some more details. And those who were with him, they heard the sounds, they knew something was going on, they realized that something had knocked Saul off his horse to the ground, but they had no clue as to what it was. They didn't know that you had seen and heard the voice of the Lord God, and you would never be the same again. So look at verses 8 and 9. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could not see a thing. Someone then led him by the hand to Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. So now you understand the setting. So let's begin with some of the obstacles that prevent us from influencing others. And picking up again in verse 10, a follower named Ananias lived in Damascus. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision. Ananias answered, Lord, here I am. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And when you get there, you will find a man named Saul from the city of Tarsus. Saul is praying, and he has seen a vision. He saw a man named Ananias coming to him and putting his hands on him so that he could see again. Now, I'm not sure Ananias even hears that last statement, because in 13, Ananias replied, Lord, a lot of people have told me about the terrible things that this man has done to your followers in Jerusalem. 
Now the chief priests have given him the power to come here and arrest anyone who worships in your name. If Satan wants us to be full of fear, Ananias is saying here, uh, we know, Lord, but this uh, Saul guy, you know, I'm not just feeling that led to go and talk to him. I'm, you're sending me to pray and share the gospel with this individual? This would be like sending someone to go to a murderous dictator today and say, I want to pray with you. I want to talk with you about Jesus. And then Ananias is, and says, Lord, I don't think you really understand what this guy is like. And that's kind of comical because he's talking to the Lord God, the one who made Saul in the first place. He understands everything. But God wasn't that diplomatic in his response in verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, I have chosen him to tell foreigners, kings, and the people of Israel about me. I will show him how much he must suffer for worshiping in my name. Now that word go, it, it's just a one word imperative here. And, and just as he spoke to Philip and he, last week and told him to go and approach the chariot that, that Ethiopian was in, he's telling Ananias to go. But then he goes on to explain why. He says, I have chosen him to tell foreigners I've chosen him to advance the gospel to royalty and to Jews and to the Gentiles. But while God is speaking to Ananias, Satan's there, he's whispering to Ananias, don't even waste your breath on this. This guy doesn't deserve Jesus. Keep him all to yourself. And that's the second obstacle that we face in influencing others for Christ, is the fact that Satan wants us to just coast through our Christian lives by keeping the good news all to ourselves, by never sharing it with other people. Years ago, some researchers did a little experiment with northern pike. They put a northern pike in a large aquarium that held several thousand liters of water, and every day they fed him his favorite food, minnows. So this pike had a really good existence. Then one day, the researchers put a big piece of plexiglass into that tank, basically dividing it in two. So then they would put the minnows in this side, and the pike was on the other side. So the pike would see the minnows, and he would swim around, and when he was hungry, he would go towards the minnows, as he always had. But he would bang his snout on the plexiglass, so he would swim around, he would try it again. And finally, he just gave up. It was just too much pain. It was too much frustration. And he just assumed that these fish were out of his reach. And eventually, the researchers removed the plexiglass. But guess what happened to the pike? The pike actually starved to death. Here he was with his favorite food swimming all around him. They were brushing his underbelly. They were going right by his mouth. But he never tried to eat one of them because he felt that they were no longer available to him. They just, just weren't able to be touched. And there are a lot of things that we become conditioned to believe. It might be behaviors, it might be attitudes, it, it might be actions. But somewhere along the line, we see and sense the barriers. 
and the barriers are fear, their doubt, their pride, it's insecurity. But we need to realize that we have to trust in the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit has removed the plexiglass and wants us to touch and influence as many people as we can. So we don't need to be starving ourselves by living in the flesh. We need to be flourishing and thriving by the Holy Spirit. But we make excuses, don't we? Like we'll say, well, I'm too young, or I'm too old, it's too awkward, I can't relate to kids anymore. Or my boss would fire me if I tried to influence her in a spiritual way. And the list goes on and on of the different things that motivate us to be fearful and insecure. So we never touch these people. And every day we're out in this world, three Christians are rushing against our belly. They're in front of our eyes at all times. They're right there. But it's so easy to condition ourselves to say, I would never really make any influence in that person's life, so I'm not even going to try. And all the while, they're there swimming circles around us. But remember these words of Paul. Several decades later, in 2 Timothy, he wrote, God's Spirit doesn't make cowards out of us. The Spirit gives us power, love, and self-control. Power, love, and self-control. So that enables us to make the influence into the lives of the people around us. So let's look at some of the characteristics that the Holy Spirit uses to influence others. And there, this is why the Holy Spirit could use Ananias, because he had these essential traits. And the first one was credibility. And Acts 22 tells us that Ananias was a follower of Jesus and a devout observer of the law. And even though he was a Christian, we're told that he was highly respected by all the Jews that lived there as well. He was a consistent follower of Christ. And when invited by God to have this face-to-face -face meeting with this dangerous enemy, he put up a bit of a concern at first, but he followed the Lord's leading. And that's why God chose to use him. And that's the way that God works today. He has a tendency to use those people who open themselves up to be controlled by Him, to listen to His voice. So live a life that communicates credibility. Your witness and your example are going to give you the right to influence the people that you encounter in your life. Then obedience is the second thing we need. Like Ananias went to the house, and as he knocked on that door, he was probably scared to death. Like, have you ever knocked on a door and just knocked lightly, hoping people don't hear? So then you don't have to go in and say what you were going to say or do what you were going to do. And I'm sure that Saul was, excuse me, Ananias was doing the very same thing. But he heard a voice, and the voice said to come in. And then he finds this man. It's not a warrior or a tyrant. He finds this broken man who's been spending all this time alone thinking about what he has done. He's a repentant blind man. And then Paul's personal testimony of what happened next is listed in chapter 22, verse 13. He came to me and said, Saul, my friend, you can now see again. And at once I could see. Then Ananias told me, the God that our ancestors worshipped 
has chosen you to know what he wants done. He has chosen you to see the one who obeys God and to hear his voice. You must tell everyone what you have seen and heard. So if the Holy Spirit can empower a Christian named Ananias to have a face-to-face -face meeting with a murderer named Saul, then don't you think he can empower you to do a lot of things as well? But for parents, don't you think he would enable you to begin to see your children as a blessing rather than as an interruption in your life? Employees, don't you think that he would empower you to be an example for the co-workers that you have, to be an example in obedience and in your work ethic? And students, like, don't you think he could help you take a stand and choose to be different from the other people in your class? In verse 18, in chapter 9, suddenly something like fish scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see. He got up and was baptized. Then he ate and felt much better. For several days, Saul stayed with the Lord's followers in Damascus. So another part of making ourselves available to the Holy Spirit is to be thorough. Sometimes we'll actually leave some things out of the presentation. We, we talk about involvement with church, but we neglect to speak about cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus. We speak of doing good things in our lives, but we neglect to talk about the grace of God, which covers over all the bad stuff and, and, and all the baggage in our lives. And sometimes churches will stop short when it comes to baptism. But if we truly want to restore the New Testament church, and we read through the book of Acts, we see that in every conversion experience, baptism by immersion was a natural step when one was choosing to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It wasn't an add-on to get around to it whenever you felt like it, like a month later or a year later. Immediately after Saul's sight was restored, he doesn't say, let's go get some food here. Look, you've been fasting for three days. The first thing that Ananias says is in Acts 22:16. And now, what are you waiting for? Like, get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins by praying to the Lord. But we can see a pattern developing among those who have committed their lives to Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, like 3,000 people were baptized that day the church started. And then last week we talked about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And immediately the eunuch wanted to be baptized. He said, here is some water. What keeps me from being baptized? And Philip's response was, as long as you believe in Jesus. And he was baptized right then and there. So Ananias prays with Paul. And then the first words out of his mouth are, What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Now, there are four observations that I want to close with about this account of Ananias going to Saul. And God is always working in people's lives. But he works to unfold his plan according to his will, according to his timetable, not ours. So God prepares the way, and then he works upstream against the flow to bring his will about. 
Let's say, for example, a man who hadn't been to church since he was a child was invited to church by a friend. He doesn't know why he said yes, but he did. He takes his wife and his two children, and they go to church. And they're all expecting this to be a terrible experience, but they walk through the front doors, and they're greeted by a smiling person who gives them a bulletin to read. Someone else tells them, you know, your two-year-old can go downstairs right now to the nursery program. Your six-year-old can go into kids' church. And then they walk through the doorway and they see this handsome senior pastor standing there and say hello to him. And they go in and, and the worship begins. And you know, the worship is upbeat, it's contemporary. They see the words on PowerPoint and they think, oh, this is going to be okay. And then when the pastor, whoever gets up to speak that day, does stand up, they discover that it's on the topic that they've been struggling with that week. It's as if God was speaking to them. And then they look around the room and they actually see someone else that they know besides the person who invited them. And then someone invites them to have a coffee in the cafe afterwards. That God is constantly working in people's lives to bring these events about. Like last week, I talked those like about miraculous events that God will bring about in our lives. He will bring people into our lives that we intersect with. But realize that God is always working in people's lives. He was working in Saul's life to get him ready along the road, as he was working in the life of Ananias to get him ready to go and talk to Saul. And the second observation is, God will use you if you're willing. That even if you're a little hesitant, even if you're a little bit fearful, learn a lesson from Ananias. When you're afraid, God can still use you. Because you are depending on Him and not on yourself. So when you're nervous about praying with your unbelieving spouse, remember that power is there. Or when you stutter, when you try to share with a co-worker about your church and how great you think it is, Remember that God is there. Or when you begin hosting a home group for the first time, and you're nervous as people are coming into your home, remember that God is there. That when we're at our worst, God is at his best. And if you are willing, then God will use you. Another observation is that the potential and possibilities for impact are actually more than we expect. That we can make an eternal difference in the lives of others as God works through us in the way we serve, in the way we love, in the way we live, in the way we give. Look at Philippians 1.6. God is the one who begins this good work in you. And I am certain that he won't stop before it is complete on the day that Christ Jesus returns. So God is able to do so much more than we even ask of him or that we even imagine. And God may use you to do something in the life of the least likely person that would come to the Lord. He might use you in a way that you could never imagine. Howard Hendricks said, I've never met anyone who planned on having a mediocre life, but I have met plenty of mediocre people. And we don't intend to live that way, but if we aren't intentional about living a powerful life, 
we will fall into that pattern. So decide that you want to serve God with excellence, that you won't settle for being a half-hearted Christian with lukewarm commitment and passion. And we've got something that we're going to be doing beginning on Saturday the 8th, excuse me, on Sunday, the 8th of the 9th of September. I'll get the dates right here. But we're beginning a GROW program. So people in our church have been working to put this program together. There is a, an insert in your bulletin if you would look at that. But it's all about taking your faith to that next level and growing to the point where you will make a difference in someone's life. It's an eight-month commitment. There will be a class once a month. Each month will be a separate module. You'll be given some homework. You'll actually be lined up with an individual who will be kind of a mentor with you during that month. And then we come back together the next month and move on to the next topic. But it's a powerful program, and I urge you to sign up and take that. And you can start at any time throughout the year and then just pick up the other months that you've missed the following year because it will be a continual thing. But go to the website, and there's more information about that as well. The Our God is someone who specializes in doing what's impossible. So here he takes a militant opponent of the faith and turns him into someone who becomes an amazing defender of the faith. And he uses an unknown Christian to do that, to influence him. And he still does that today. And it's amazing what happens when a person allows the Holy Spirit to work through them in the lives of someone that we encounter in our lives. So be ready when he says go. And there was a tragic airline crash near Washington's National Airport back in January of 1982. And television crews relayed what was taking place as Air Florida Flight 9 crashed into the Potomac River just 20 seconds after taking off in a blizzard. And the video showed a couple of people that were struggling in the frigid water in the midst of this blizzard, and they were struggling to grab hold of the life ring that was let down, dropped down from the helicopter for them. And one woman was pulled to safety, but the other woman was on a partially submerged cake of ice, and she was feebly paddling for shore, apparently in shock, and it was so cold that she couldn't hold on to the ring when it was lowered down to her. And the Washington Post said, although the shoreline was crowded with rescue personnel, and this woman's state was obvious, nobody acted. But at that moment, a 28-year-old government errand runner, Lenny Shutnik, who stood watching from along the riverbank, could stand it no longer. And he later said, I felt so helpless that she was screaming, would somebody please help me? And it looked like she had passed out. I jerked off my boots and coat and jumped into the water. And Shutnik swam to the woman, dodging chunks of ice and airplane debris, and he pulled her to shore. And later on he said, when the girl needed saving, God had looked around and said, Eeny, meeny, mighty, and your moan. So I jumped in. Like Satan would love to remind us of past failures. He would love to remind us of all of those. So he would try to convince us to just, you know, stand there 
along the river. There's nothing you could do. You messed this up before. Or he would convince us to not try something new. He doesn't want us to influence others. But frequently, we Christians sense that God wants us to get involved in some difficult work. But, boy, that water, it, it just seems so cold. Or that task, it just seems so dangerous. And then, but if there's so many others that, that could be doing something about this. But when God taps you on the shoulder and says, you're mold, then be ready to jump in. The passage concludes by saying after Saul's baptism, he wasted no time in going and influencing others. And people were astonished at his transformation. And previously the Jews had seen Saul as the enforcer, as the intimidator. But once Jesus got hold of him, now they wanted to kill him. But already they knew that his testimony was one that they couldn't refute. So no wonder God sent Ananias to him. And the ripple effect began. I began my message by mentioning Edward Kemble, a shy Sunday school teacher who went out on a limb and shared his faith with that young teenage shoe salesman who went on to impact tens of thousands. And here's how the ripple effect of the Holy Spirit can enable you to influence others. Edward Kemble influenced Dwight Moody for Christ, and though poorly educated, Moody, on one of his trips to England, influenced the educated and cultured theologian Frederick B. Meyer to change his preaching style and emphasis. And later, F.B. Meyer came to the United States on an evangelistic tour, and on one occasion, a discouraged preacher by the name of Wilbur Chapman was in the audience, and Meyer's preaching influenced him to become an evangelist, and he began doing revivals. And as Chapman's evangelistic ministry grew, he needed an assistant, so he hired a former baseball player with just a high school education to help him, and his name was Billy Sunday. And he went on to hold evangelistic crusades and lead a million people to Christ. And then in 1924 in Charlotte, North Carolina, Sunday preached at a revival and a prayer group was formed. And that group met regularly. And they were praying that someone younger would come along and lead a spiritual revival through America. And a man by the name of Mordecai Ham responded, and he later pursued ministry training and became an evangelist. And some years later, after he preached a sermon, he extended an invitation to accept Christ. And a 16-year-old farm boy responded and was converted. And his name was Billy Graham. And he has reached millions. Like that chain of conversion really started much later, excuse me, much earlier, way back in 33 A.D. on a Friday, when Jesus Christ went to the cross for us, when the Son of God chose to influence others by becoming a perfect sacrifice on that cross. Maybe today is your day to make a decision. As some of you may need to hear the words of Ananias as he said, Now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized, washing your sins away as you call upon Jesus' name. Would you stand as we sing our song of commitment?
if you've never turned your life over to Jesus, this is a perfect opportunity for you to do that. 